We'll be in three passages of Scripture this morning, all with the same theme, the love of Jesus and how we respond to it. First in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 through 7, God's Word says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon his name while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And finally, from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. This is God's word to us. You may be seated. Have you ever had what you would consider to be a uh, wake-up call? In life, pretty much everybody probably has uh, at one time or another. You know, it could be something sudden or dramatic, uh, or it could be something much more gradual, but you know, we probably all can relate to times in life where something caused us to sort of rethink our life a little bit. Something caused us to, to think differently about who we are and the road we're on with the result that we change direction that our lifestyle changed. That's a wake-up call. For some people, maybe it's something like you know, a near car accident or maybe an actual accident that, thankfully, you walk away from. And that forever changes the way you drive a car. You know? From then on, it's all different because you realize how fragile life can be. Or maybe it's a health scare that radically alters your diet and your exercise routine. Sudden wake-up calls. Wake-up calls can also be a little bit more gradual. Uh, For some people, actually, let's be honest, for just about everybody, uh, getting married is a bit of a wake-up call, isn't it? Anybody who's ever been married can probably relate to that. You know, when you shift from the single life to the married life, it's a bit of a wake-up call. It's just different, and almost all of us universally underestimate how different it's going to be. Right? I mean, you know, just simple things like my time and my money. I can't just make decisions about those things and spend my time and my money the way that I've become used to for years and years of my life. There's always this other person who's there, right? It, it's not even just my time. The way I spend my time is now going to affect my wife. And part of marriage is I say, yeah, you have a claim on me. I can't just decide where I want to go and what I want to do now without you. And, and my money 
It isn't really my money anymore. It's our money. And the adjustment to that is often a little bit rough, and some of the conflicts and frustrations that arise in the first months and couple years of marriage, a little bit of a wake-up call for people. Like, I, I can't keep living this way. I've got to learn to live differently now. And in fact, the mark of good marriage is that we do that. We learn to live in a totally different way. Wake-up calls, there are times where you, something happens that makes you rethink some aspect of your life with the result that you actually start living differently. We call it a, a wake-up call, or sometimes we will refer to it as uh, so-and-so had a real change of heart. But you know, the Bible has a word for this experience as well, specifically as it relates to the gospel of Jesus. And the biblical word for it is repentance. To repent. It's essentially what we mean when we say to have a wake-up call. Now, this is going to become important for the next couple of weeks for us because as a church, we've just finished walking through the gospel of Mark with, uh, from cover to cover, sort of walking with our Savior, Jesus, through his life and through his death and through his ultimate resurrection. We, we sort of stepped back and we marveled at what Jesus did for us. That was, that's the point of the whole thing. What has God done for us in Jesus? And we finished that look last Sunday on Easter Sunday. What a great time to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. That's what the word means. This, the center of the Christian faith, the whole main point of Christianity, the gospel, is good news about what Jesus did for us. It's not about what we do, it's about what God has done. And we have rightly spent a good amount of time reflecting on that and celebrating it. Now, for the next few Sundays, we're going to preach a short topical series of messages that take that Easter message sort of its next logical step. And that is we're going to answer two questions from the Bible. First of all, we're going to answer the question, how do we respond to what God did for us? The gospel is all about what Jesus did for us, then how are we as people supposed to respond to the gospel? And not surprisingly, the Bible has quite a bit to say about that. And then secondly, we're also going to look at the great reality that is created when we do respond to the gospel, namely how we live out the reality that God makes us as people members of his family, sons, as we heard in the scripture passages a moment ago, and daughters. It's a very unique and special relationship. So this morning, we're going to kind of look at these things, responding to the gospel, and then a little bit later, the reality of becoming God's family. We're going to look at that from Scripture together, and then for the next couple of Sundays, we're going to start to work out the implications of that for us as a church. And the whole goal of that is that we would see as people from God's own word how he calls us to respond to his message of what he has done for us. It begins with this whole idea of the response that we have and the response that God calls for to the gospel in the Bible. The response is really can be described in a single word, and it's turn. It's a turning. Turning away from the life I used to live apart from Jesus and turning toward Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. 
That's the response. The theologians call that conversion, okay? And there's really two sides to it, the turning away from sin and the turning toward Jesus. We're going to look at each one of those individually because they are kind of different ideas, but they're actually not completely separated. They're really just two sides of the same coin. The turn away from my life in sin is a turn toward Jesus, and this is significant whether you've never heard about Jesus before or whether you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years. These teachings are core to our experience as Christian people. This idea, the word uh, repentance is that turn away from sin. Turn away from sin. We called it a wake-up call a few moments ago. It's when the Bible describes repenting, you know, Jesus came at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Uh, he's, he's a great example of this. He said, when he came on the scene, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we saw this in our study of Mark's gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. And there's our Lord himself telling us what to do. The kingdom of heaven is here. That's the gospel. That's what God did for us. Therefore, what does he call us to do? Repent, he says, and believe in the gospel. Two sides of the same coin, to repent and to believe. And when he says repent, the word is uh, really a combination of two words in the original language that this was written, the Bible was written in, in the first century. The first word simply means change. And the second word refers to your understanding, the way you see life, basically, the way you think about life. So when you put them together, what do you get? Change the entire way you see life. That's what God is telling us to do. When you say that word repent, which is kind of a Bible word, we don't use that word in our common English typically these days. But when you see that word, just think of that. that. That's what he's trying to say. Change the way you see life. And specifically, he's saying change the way that you see yourself. Come to see yourself as a sinner who is in need of the gospel of grace. Now, if we unpack that a little bit, you kind of find out in the Bible there's sort of three layers to it, if you will. Almost like three layers of an onion. You peel back each one until you really get to the core of it. You see, to repent in the Bible certainly means to agree with God that I'm a sinner. But not just to agree with the Bible on that. But it does start with agreeing with the Bible that I'm a sinner. After all, the whole message of the Christian faith is how God can save you and I from our sins. Now, if we don't think we have anything that we need to be saved from, then that's kind of where it ends right there, isn't it? I mean, by definition, at that point, if I don't think I'm a sinner, if I don't think I have anything that I need to be saved from, then by definition, I'm not a Christian. Even if I say I love God and I believe the Bible and I go to church. I have to agree with God that I am indeed a sinner and I need to be saved from that sin. But even if I've gotten to that point, I've not yet repented. It goes another step further. The Bible also describes experiencing remorse or regret over my sin. You know, it's possible to say, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm less than perfect, so is everybody, but come on. I don't really feel bad about it. And if I don't feel bad about it, I'm probably not repenting according to the Bible. In fact, Jesus said when he was going to send the Holy Spirit into the world, he's talking to his disciples in the upper room the night before he died, and he said one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is, to, is going to be to convict the world of sin. And there's another Bible word for it, convict. When we experience conviction, or we would say remorse 
or regret. One of God's goals is to help us understand how awful our sin is and to feel bad about it. Now, here's the interesting point. Is feeling bad about wrong actions and sin in my life, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And it kind of turns out it could be either. It could be either. The Bible talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul, there's a little bit of quick background here. The Apostle Paul's writing this letter to the church in the ancient city of Corinth, hence the word Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthians, the people who lived in Corinth. He had written them a letter prior to this where he sort of took them to task for some of their sinful behavior. He was sort of calling them out. And he's saying, you guys, you can't keep living this way. You've got to knock it off. And as a result, that kind of made them feel bad. They felt guilty. They felt shamed. Well, then later he writes this letter that we're now reading, and he says, I didn't feel good about the fact that my previous letter caused you grief, but look what he says. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting so that you suffered no loss through us. He goes on and says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces only death. This is kind of interesting. You see what the Bible is doing there? It's drawing a distinction. It's saying there's like good guilt and bad guilt. There's good grief and remorse and there's bad grief and remorse. Bad grief and remorse just leaves you covered over with guilt. And nobody likes feeling that way. And for so many of us, there is sin in our life that we know about. And maybe we're the only ones who know about it. And we feel horribly guilty about it. But we still hold on to the sin and we just wallow in our guilt and it'll destroy you. That's what he's saying here. Worldly grief just produces death. It'll just destroy you. But godly grief, what grief or remorse is supposed to do is it's supposed to make me repudiate my sin. It's supposed to lead me to repentance. So I've got to agree with God that I'm a sinner. There needs to be this remorse that I experience as a result of my sin. But even at this point... If I agree with God, I'm a sinner, and I experience remorse, I still haven't repented. It's not until this third and final stage where I then renounce that sin that, according to the Bible, I have repented. We read earlier from Isaiah chapter 55, says it so clearly, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. And that if they turn to the Lord, God will abundantly pardon there's this acknowledgement in responding to the gospel that I am a sinner, I am living out my sin, it is wrong, it's awful, I feel bad about it. That can look or feel or be experienced in different ways by different people, but somewhere there's going to be a remorse or a guilt, and it results in me saying, I'm done with that. I've had a wake-up call. I'm done with that, and I am changing the course of my life. We've probably all experienced situations like this, whether on issues of big sin or even in smaller areas of life, you know, where you can, you can know that something's wrong, but you still want to do it anyway. Or you can even believe that something's bad and feel awful about it, but you don't really change your mind. In a really sort of lighthearted and more funny way, I had what to this day is still a fascinating experience in my own life with this, and it relates to you guys. Um, Here's what I mean. Some of you know, most of you know, that for years and years, I drove bright orange 1974 International Scout 2, right? That was like my truck. I think some of you thought it was my third arm. 
Because here's the thing, I had that old scout for 11 years. I'd got it just a couple of years before I came to Harvest, but like so many people in this church only got to know me with that scout. And so it's like we just went together, you know, it was like my third arm. And then a year and a half ago, I sold it. That was an action that caused an unbelievable amount of angst and sorrow for you. Not for me. I'm not kidding, guys. I still, to this day, get people come in and say, how could you have sold it? What were you thinking? Like, I'm losing sleep. And I mean, not quite that bad, but, you know, like, this has affected me personally. I'm going, guys, it was my truck, okay? <laughs> I should be all brent out of shape over it and, and the churches. But that's because it was so much a part of me. It was identifiable. It was interesting. When I originally got that car, that truck, I knew nothing about cars. I mean, like I could change oil and change tire. That was about it. And I think what I, part of what I loved about it, I just liked having the old truck. It was fun to drive, but um, it was also a lot of work to maintain and to keep it on the road. But for a while, I enjoyed that too because I was learning new stuff all the time. I mean, I got together with guys that actually knew what they're doing under a hood, which I didn't. And it was fascinating for me to learn new stuff. I mean, with other people's help, I tore, learned how to tear apart a carburetor and clean it all out and put new gaskets in it and put it all back together again. And uh, I completely rewired the ignition on that whole truck and converted it to an electronic ignition. At one point, I even put a new transmission in the thing with help from somebody who really knows what he's doing. And all of that was really interesting to me, but, you know, after many years, our family situation was starting to change. Um, our other car, you know, it was getting older, and, and anyway, just needs of our family were making it less practical for me to have this as a second vehicle. And, like, I knew that in my head. I'm like, this is not going to last forever, but I was still just loving it, so, like, we wouldn't even talk about it. But then as more time went by, even my feelings started to change a little bit. Because while I still loved driving it, I kind of started running out of new stuff to learn. And after a few years, but it didn't run out of stuff that needed attention because it's like <laughs> almost 40 years old, you know? And so it's like, all right, you know, I can lay flat on my back for a whole weekend and turn wrenches under a car, but that's not like fun for me. I mean, for some of you, you love that stuff, and I respect you to the nth degree, but like, that's just not who I am, okay? So the satisfaction when a project was done was great, but I'm like, I don't, this isn't fun anymore, you know? And so now even my feelings are starting to change, but you know what? I still kept it for another good year or more. There was this slow, gradual process of me understanding and then even my feelings shifting, but I still liked driving it. Now, that process was a long process, but it did finally come to a conclusion. How do you know it came to a conclusion? Because one day, a guy showed up and handed me some cash, and in, respond, in, in, in return, I handed him a couple sets of keys and a signed over title, and he drove it away. I sold it. The process had finally completed when my lifestyle changed, if you will, and we went in a new direction. As silly as that is, that's kind of an illustration of what the Bible's talking about when it talks about repentance. And so, friends, this morning, if you're here and, and you think, you know, I, I love God, I, I trust Jesus, I believe in the Bible, I'm a Christian, I want to encourage you not to settle for just agreeing with God that I'm a sinner. And not even to just settle for feeling regret or guilt over sin if you do have uh, guilt for the sin in your life. But repentance is complete when I renounce that sin and turn away from it. I say, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm living a new life. 
And by the way, if you have done that definitively and you know that you are a repentant Christian, let me encourage you that repentance is not a one-time act. Although it is that, we do repent at one point for the first time, and that's what makes us a Christian. But it doesn't stay in the rearview mirror. Repentance is an ongoing lifestyle. As God continues to reveal new depths of sin that is in my life, I experience conviction and remorse, and I keep repenting of it and turning away from it by bringing it to the cross. That leads us to this idea of faith or having faith and uh, believing in Jesus is how the Bible normally talks about it. The turn away from sin leads to a turn toward Jesus. And I put the word trust up on the screen in parenthesis because the word trust is probably a better word to describe this in modern America than words like faith or belief, even though faith and belief are the words that you see in the Bible. And they're perfectly good words. The reason I think the word trust is better is because we do use words like faith and believe in modern English even today. So you just got to have faith. You just got to believe. But usually, or we refer to people's faith commitments or their personal beliefs, but usually when we use those words, we mean there's something over here called facts and there's something over here called faith and those things are totally different. That's in the mindset of a modern American. Here's facts. These are known quantities. You know it. They're solid. And then over here, there's, there's your beliefs or your faith. And that's kind of fuzzy and squishy and probably not really true, but you know, whatever. If it works for you, that's great. And that is nothing what the, like what the Bible means when it uses those words. So sometimes it's better to just use a different word. When we use a word like trust or maybe a phrase like bank everything on Jesus, now we're a lot closer to what the Bible means when it says believe in Jesus. Here's an example. You've got it up there on the screen, the best-known verse in the entire Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes, there's our word, in him, Jesus, will not perish but have eternal life. But notice I've highlighted the phrase believes in him. That's an unusual phrase. And you know what? It was unusual in the first century when the Apostle John wrote it. People didn't write that way. In the original language that this was written, you could almost literally translate it, whoever believes into Jesus will have eternal life. What does that mean? To believe into Jesus. You see what he's saying? It's this idea of trust. If you take all of your belief, all of your faith, all of your hope, and you put it into Jesus, you bank everything on Jesus, then you will have eternal life. He's not just talking about the ideas that you call your personal beliefs. He's talking about what is your whole life committed to, and what are you trusting? Have you ever done a, a, a trust fall with a group of people? Some of you are nodding your heads. You know, it's like you get you know, six or so friends behind you and they line up three and three and they put their arms out and you're behind. You have to like fall back and let them catch you, but you're not seeing them back there, you know, so it's, you have to totally trust your friends. If you've ever done that, it's, it's a really simple thing to watch. It doesn't look all that, like, all that big a deal, but then when you do it, you're like, wow. I mean, it's a really moving experience because you realize I see nothing. I'm totally trusting you guys to catch me. Well, I had a really cool experience with a trust fall uh, last week, uh, a couple weeks ago, rather. My family and I went to Hawaii for a week, and my son and I went and did this zipline course. 
It was really cool. They hook you up to this cable, and you go flying across a ravine, you know. There's all these different cables. Well, one of them, the different cables had different tensions on them. Some were really tight, and some were a lot more loose. We got to one of the looser ones, and the guys that were running, the, uh, running us through the course said, okay, here's what we want to encourage you guys to do. I mean, it was optional, but you're like up on the edge of this platform, and it goes down into the, re- the ravine, and they're like, this cable's really springy, so if you really want to have fun with this one, turn around and go off backwards. And they said, just fall. And it'll dip quite a bit before it catches you, and then you'll go shooting off. And you could see some people were like, okay. Eh. And then they would go, they just couldn't do it. And I, I'm like, I'm doing this, you know? So, <laughs> so I get back there, and I'm like, okay, here we go. And I, all I see is this cable, and I'm in this harness, you know? And I just, like, leaped back, and then I fell, like, 40 feet. Actually, I think it was about six or seven But it freaked me out. Because <laughs> when it catches you, it didn't even catch you quickly. It was just kind of this gradual, okay, you know, you're not going to die, you know? And it was like, whoa. I mean, and you just, they're not pushing you off. It's like you are just falling off and putting everything on this harness and this cable to not come undone and drop you 200 feet down into the ravine. It's a total trust. That's the kind of thing the Bible talks about when it says, do you believe in Jesus? Once again, it's very similar to this idea of the layers of an onion. It starts certainly with understanding. This is believe in Jesus. It means we've got to know what G- who Jesus is. We've got to understand the facts of the gospel. That God came down in human flesh as Jesus Christ to live the righteous life for me that I could not live in my place, to die the sinner's death for me that I should have died in my place on the cross. And because of that divine exchange, I can have my sins forgiven and I can live in the same kind of resurrection life for all eternity that he does. Those are the basic facts of the gospel. They're not that complicated. We need to know them. We need to understand them because that's what it means to believe in Jesus. But it's not just about knowing the gospel. I also have to agree that the gospel is true. The gospel, the Christian gospel is a very simple message. Many people the world over know it, and many people reject it. Clearly, I've got to agree with the gospel. Yes, I am a sinner, and yes, Jesus' death in my place is the only way my sins are forgiven. But just as before, even knowing and agreeing with the gospel does not yet make me a Christian. What the Bible is describing here, when it says we need to believe into Jesus, is you've got to take the plunge. You've got to bank everything in your life on Jesus' life and death in your place, and that alone. You see, everybody has an anchor for their soul, you might say, somewhere. We're grounded, or we have a sense of our well-being. Who am I as a person? Am I okay? Am I, do I matter? Is my world going somewhere? We all find the answers to those questions somewhere, whether we think about it or not. For a lot of people, it's a social anchor. Uh, if I have lots of friends who like me and I'm part of a group and I'm affirmed by that group, then I feel like I'm a somebody. I know I'm okay. I watch my Twitter followers like a hawk and every time it goes up, I feel good about myself. And if it drops, I go into like existential meltdown, right? For some, it's not social. Maybe it's more uh, romantic and family relationships, if I have a spouse or if I have a good relationship with my kids or if I have a house full of grandkids, that's where I find my identity and my well-being. Oh, if my family was taken away from me, I just couldn't go on living. That's what I need. It could be wealth. It could be success and performance. 
Am I an achiever who is seen to be achieving? And on and on the list goes. The anchor is different probably for every person, but every one of us as human beings has in common the fact that we anchor our sense of who we are and our well-being somewhere. And in the gospel call to repentance, the Bible is saying, pull up that anchor from wherever it's stuck right now because all of those things will eventually let you down. No group of friends will be your friends forever. No spouse or children or grandchildren relationship can can ever guarantee to be there all the time and fulfill your needs. No amount of success or achievement is foolproof or bulletproof. Pull up your anchor from whatever shaky place it's on and sink it deeply into Jesus Christ. Because that's one thing that will never change. He came, God Almighty, he lived, he died, and he still loves you with the same love that drove him to do that. It will never change. Together, this, these two turns, the turn away from sin, the turn toward Christ, that is the response that God calls for from us. But just before we conclude this morning, I want to talk about one other thing. And that is I want us to see from the Bible the results of making that turn. What happens when a person repents and believes in Jesus? One of the amazing things the Bible teaches us over and over again is that a very special relationship ensues between us and God. You see, God does not just forgive our sins when we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He does not just forgive our sins and save us eternally, although he does that. He does that, but he does more. He embraces us and accepts us into his family. God Almighty makes us family. This is totally unique in world religions. This is amazing to think about. It's not just that God is God and we are his people, although that's true. It's not just that God is the king and we are his subjects, although that is true as well. It's that God is father and we are his children. The last passage we read from this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. If you don't already have your Bibles open, I want to encourage you to turn there for a moment. Romans chapter 8. Romans is the sixth book in your New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels. Then the historical book of Acts. And then the great theological book of Romans that tells us so much about the meaning of our salvation. Here's one of the things it says. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Did you catch that? Sons, and that's a gender-neutral term. It means sons and daughters of God. Not just servants, not just worshipers, not just subjects. Sons and daughters. For you did not, verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You see, the idea here is that I was living in fear of death from the earliest 
times. My sin leads me to death. I'm locked into saying I have to try to obey or to please God, and God frees me from that in the gospel. But he doesn't free me from that and then just send me right back into another slavery, another form of slavery, where now I have to say, okay, because Jesus died, I better live up to what he did for me. Because Jesus died, I better check all the right boxes and be a good enough person, or God is going to get so mad at me that he's just going to squish me like a bug. No, you didn't... God didn't give you another spirit of slavery that is driven by fear. Instead, what did he give you? He said he gave you a spirit of adoption. Adoption. You were once not part of God's family, and he has adopted you as a son and as a daughter. So we now cry out to him, not just Lord, not just God, but Father. This is a powerful an earth-shattering relationship. It goes on. That's why he keeps talking about it. The Spirit himself, verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ himself. Now think about this. To stick with the human family analogy that the Bible is going with here, Jesus is the legitimate son of the father. And he is the firstborn son, they would have said in that culture back then. And what that meant was the firstborn sort of carried on the family name. He received the primary inheritance, the firstborn son would, of the family. Jesus was the legitimate, the only begotten, and therefore the firstborn son of God. He deserves everything. He inherits all of heaven and all of heaven's righteousness and all of heaven's glory. Okay? That's pretty amazing, but that follows. That's not really all that earth-shattering or shocking if you're following along with the storyline of the Bible. But here's where it gets crazy. Here's where it gets shocking. Here's the plot twist. In having achieved his rightful inheritance as the king of the universe, the Bible says that through Jesus, God the Father now adopts other children. And since they are now adopted children in Christ, they too receive an inheritance from the Father. Not an inheritance that they deserve by their rightful birth, but an inheritance that Jesus deserves by his. We become, in fact, the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ himself. That last statement is so bizarre, it is even still hard for me to say, but that's what the Bible teaches. If you're in Romans chapter 8, drop down to verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many What's the word? Brothers. He is the preeminent son. He is the chief son. He's the legitimate son. He is the glorified son. But he takes us not just as his servants, but as his brothers and his sisters to share in the glorious inheritance he has procured from his 
Father. You see, the amazing thing is that there's nothing else in salvation that requires this. God didn't have to do it this way. I mean, the Bible teaches that in the gospel, Jesus atones for my sin. In other words, he wipes it out. He takes care of my sin problem. God atones for my sin because of Jesus. He justifies me, and basically that means he declares me now not guilty because of Jesus. And furthermore, he provides me with entry into heaven for all eternity because of Jesus. That's great. None of that requires him to treat me like an adopted son. God could have stopped right there. He could have said, I paid for your sins. I've atoned for it. You are uh, innocent in my sight. You're no longer guilty. And therefore, you may enter heaven for all eternity. He could have stopped right there. And if he did, the gospel would be amazing. It would be amazing. That's even a weak word. We would, we would still, if that were the case, stand in worshipful awe for all eternity of the incredible love that God has for us and marvel at the grace that he poured out upon us, we who are so undeserving that God would die for our sins, cleanse them, and let us into his presence for eternity. That would be unspeakably amazing, even if it stopped right there. But there's more. There's even more. God could have produced servants, but instead he created children. And anyone who's ever had a child, been a parent, can start to relate to the intense intimacy of that relationship and how significant that is. God could have sought a mass of worshipers, but he was after a massive family. Jesus could have expunged my sin, which he did, but instead he does more. He makes me his brother, his sister, to share in his inheritance. Friends, this is why we've titled this short little series we're doing, Welcome Home. Because it is absolutely essential that we understand not only the gospel, but we understand how the Bible tells us to respond to the gospel. We need to know what repentance is. We need to know what faith is. But we also need to understand something. In giving us his son in our place and in giving us clear instructions of how to respond to the gospel, what it means to follow him, what God is doing is he is opening up a door that to us was forever locked. And it turns out to be a front door with a welcome mat. And he's saying, welcome home. This is where you've always belonged, whether you knew it or not, up until now. You are part of my family, and I have made the way for you to be adopted back into this family. That is the love that God has for us. Let me conclude by reading the last few verses of Romans chapter 8. Having spent a whole chapter trying to unpack the unfathomable reality of this, the Apostle Paul who's writing this concludes, 
What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you as we say so often, as your people. We are your people because of what you've done but we also come before you as your family. You, God Almighty, family with us, sinful people. It seems so fantastical. I wouldn't even dare to utter it if it were not the clear and potent teaching of your word over and over and over again. And so we say it because you have said it. And we come before you, Father, as a church, begging you to make more clear to us deeply in our hearts where we still anchor our lives in the temporary meaningless stuff of this world, that we might pull those anchors up new and fresh over again and establish the anchor of our soul firmly in what you have done for us on the cross and with an empty tomb so that we might be and rejoice in being your family. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is not completely clear on how they relate with you, whether they are a son or daughter, I pray, Spirit of God, that you would do your work and convict of sin. I pray that you would connect them with a Christian friend here, maybe someone who they came to church with, one of our pastors, one of our elders, that we might walk them through embracing the reality of your son and entering your family. We rejoice to see people give their lives to you for the first time and find life for the first time. And Father, for those of us who have repented long ago, we find ourselves still battling the pull of the world and the flesh and the devil. We want to anchor our souls in you as your people to find our identity as your family. And then God, would you give us the grace by your wisdom and your power to enable us to live as your family, as brothers and sisters Not strangers who don't care about one another, but as brothers and sisters here in this church so that that life in and of itself would be a powerful testimony to the gospel in our community. We pray for these things in your name because we believe they're your will and we praise you. Amen.